At 17, Joseph had everything a teenager could want. A generous father, a good job, an incredible dream for the future. Nothing could block his path to incredible success, or could it? Have you ever heard the story of Peter the Optimist and Oscar the Pessimist? Let's join Dave Wurtson, our Truth Encounter study leader, as he begins today with the story that will introduce the theme of Joseph's life. When I was a kid at Christmas time, they would let you go into Macy's department store, and for about an hour, this special kid that had won this contest would be able to go and get anything that they wanted. And they took this little boy that was a pessimist and they put him in a room that was loaded with all the things that a little boy would want to play with. The psychologists that were watching, you know, they had that, that one-way mirror that they could watch this little boy. And the little boy would play with a nice truck for a little while, then he would throw that down, then he would play with a, you know, with a... Uh, a fire truck, and he would throw that down. He would grab a toy airplane, he would throw that down. He would color for a while, and he'd throw that down. And after watching this kid for about an hour and a half, the kid was sitting right in the middle of the room with his hands folded like this, just bawling his eyes out. And they walk in, what's the matter, what's the matter? And says, man, there's just nothing in here that I can play with. And man, the psychologist, you know, they said, man, this guy, this kid is really a hard case. He took this little optimist. Now, this optimist kid was one of those kids that no matter what you gave this kid to do, he, this kid to do, he was positive. Took this kid, and they locked him in a room that was about 10 foot by 10 foot. And this room was piled high with horse manure. I mean, this room was just packed full of horse manure, and they watched this kid. And man alive, they watched this kid for an hour, and after an hour of watching this kid in the horse manure, they opened the door and went in. The kid was covered from head to toe with manure. I mean, he had it in his hair and his ears all over the place. You say, what in the world was he doing? Man, he went into that pile of manure and just started chucking in everything. Man, it started out just being a great big pile in the middle of the room. It was all over the room, all over the room. They watched this kid in frantic activity. What in the world are you doing? They said to him after an hour. And he says, man alive with this much manure in this room, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. That's the story of Joseph. There's some of you in this room that are like the little boy that no matter how many toys we give you in life, you're not going to ever be satisfied. You're going to play with trucks. You're going to play with cars. You can play with jobs. You can play with careers. You can play with sexuality. You can go through life and you can try every toy there is. And it's always going to come up just plain old manure. You're always going to be dissatisfied because you're a pessimist. Because you don't have a dream. There's going to be somebody else in this room that's going to take life the way it is. What the story of Joseph shows us is that life is filled with manure. Life is filled with lots and lots of smelly, dirty, difficult, hopeless, meaningless jobs to do. And it'll crush you unless you have a dream. The little boy that was an optimist had a daddy who loved him. He had a daddy who he believed was good. 
He had a daddy that he knew if that daddy put him in a room that was filled with manure, that when he got to the bottom of the manure, there would have to be a pony because his dad was so good. That's the story of the life of Joseph. I want you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. And Genesis chapter 37 could be entitled, The Teen with Broken Dreams. Genesis chapter 37 gets into Joseph at 17. We're introduced to a man that at 17 faced one of the most difficult manure piles that any of us could ever face. Now to get you into the flow of chapter 37, I need to take you back to chapter 36, which if you're reading through the book of Genesis with us, you probably skipped over chapter 36. I did for the most part, not really. But chapter 36 is a list of all of Esau's family. And unless you're a member of Esau's family tree, it probably didn't lead to much scintillating reading. In other words, if your name isn't mentioned in chapter 36, you probably just don't really get into Jobab and Husham and the Temanites and Hadad and Samaya and Masrika. You're probably just not really just spending your quiet time in that. You say, well, Dave, why in the world did God, when he only had 66 books to get across his message, why did he give us a list of Esau's family tree? Because if you'll read through chapter 36 and you'll get kind of an overview of it, you'll realize that what it's telling us is that Esau became Edom, which became a mighty, mighty people. You see, we started out with Esau, just the brother of Jacob. But in just the single course of a lifetime, Esau was transformed from just being Esau, the older hunter brother of Jacob, the man who loved porridge, and loved soup more than he loved the promises of God, this man grew up and became a powerful ruler. He went down into what is today called Petra, which in those days was in southern, near Sinai, and it was a beautiful area in South Jordan. It was an area that had water that was available. It had protection. And Esau, remember those 400 men? He was able to conquer an ancient people called the Horites, which means the stone dwellers. And he took over this area there in South Jordan. His family multiplied. He infiltrated with the other people. And in just a short period of time, he became a powerful ruler. He became a king. In fact, in the kingdom of Edom, they had a monarchy long before. Right in the middle of this chapter, it says there were kings in Edom long before there were kings in Israel. You say, Dave, what's all that about? When everyone to get this, earthly power and glory can come fast. If you're six foot nine and you've got tremendous coordination and you can rise up above these hoops on either side of the auditorium this morning, about a foot, and if you can jam it backwards, there's a good chance, if you do that well enough, you can become powerful, you you can become influential when you're 22 years old. 21. 19, if you're Moses Malone, who went in right out of high school, right into the, the NBA and made it, and has made it ever since. You see, earthly glory can come quick, it can come suddenly, and Esau is a picture of that kind of rise. And I want you to remember that. The tragedy of that kind of power and influence is that you probably haven't had the time 
to learn the lessons of life to escape the perils of power. And the story of Edom is a story of a people who lived for military might. They lived for materialistic gain. And as the story of the Old Testament develops, there comes a time when the people of Edom are gobbled up by other nations, specifically by God's people, the nation of Israel. Now, as we open up chapter 37, there's a verse that when you read the chapters, you open it up in verse 1, you just read it, and it doesn't, you say, why in the world did Moses put this little transition in here? Because it's very important. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. Let me give a little bit more color to that translation. Jacob lived as a wanderer. Jacob lived as an alien in the same land that his father had lived as an alien in. Now, what does that mean? You see, Esau's down there in Edom. What is he doing? He's becoming powerful. He's building houses. He's got an army. He becomes a king. What's his brother Jacob doing? The man who supposedly has the blessings of God. Jacob is just walking around like a, like a wayfarer. He's just coming through town. He never really possesses hardly anything. Now, as I look at these two men and I say, now, who's really pulling it off? Who's really got a dream? Who's really going to accomplish something? I would choose Edom. I would choose Esau. But in the story of Genesis, it was not Esau, it was Jacob. Now, there's two kinds of people in this room this morning. Some of us are living the Esau way. We learned that. Are we in the porridge or are we into the promise? Are we living for the soup or are we living for the promises of God? Some of us are Esau people. The whole dimension of our lives is just this 70, 80, 85 year period. And all of our goals revolve around that. You're living to make a lot of money so you can retire from your job, so you can just kind of do your own thing. And all the dimensions of your thinking are in terms of just now. And you're climbing up the ladder and you're battling to be able to do that. And I want to share with you from the bottom of my heart that Esau-like existence will turn into a manure pile that will stink your life. It will destroy your life. Now there's some other people in this group where you're living differently. Your whole time dimension is different. In other words, you don't look upon this life as home. You don't look upon seven years of existence as being the end of all things. You don't just say, well, you know, human life is all I have and I'm going to go for it and go for all the gusto I can get. I've got another whole dimension. Some of you have a dimension that goes into eternity. And you believe when Jesus said, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the what? The children of God. To as many as believed in Jesus Christ, God gave you the power to become what? The children of God. What did children of God do for all of eternity? Children of God for all of eternity do what? If you're the son of God, you are a son of the ultimate king. And what do the children of ultimate kings do? They reign. Brothers and sisters, this is a story of power. Life is about power. Life is about who will rule. Some of you in your heart say, well, I can't do anything. I'm not worth anything. And you're going to just squander your life because you don't have a dream. You don't have a dream to rule. You don't have a dream to have influence. You don't have a dream to accomplish anything. And that's sad. 
Maybe your parents told you all your life, you can't do anything right, you always blow it, and you had the audacity of believing your parents were right. They're not. If you're a child of God, you were born to rule. You were born to rule. Some of you will believe another lie. It's a lie I was just talking about. You're going to say, I'm just going to rule right now. I'm going to be powerful right now. I'm going to do it my own way. And you're going to settle for the wrong kingdom. You're going to be ruling in a kingdom where just like that, it's gone. Donald Trump rules Manhattan one day. The next day, he is the comic relief of Manhattan. Do you want to live that way? That's reality. When I did a prophetic congress back in New York, Donald Trump was the up-and-coming young rising star. Every cafe you would go into, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump. I would watch his helicopters flying over to Atlantic City, and everybody goes, wow. If I went back to New York now and stopped in Manhattan, he'd be a joke. That's sad. He lived for the wrong kingdom. He lived for a kingdom that just disappears like that. But it's quick, and it can happen fast. And when you're on the ride up, it's exhilarating. But it's a farce. But there's another kingdom. Another ruling. And God tells us that if you want to rule in this kingdom, instead of a quick rise to power, you've got to go through a whole lot of manure. You've got to go through a whole lot of difficult experiences. In fact, God says from a New Testament perspective that all this life is like a training ground going through some really difficult character-building times in order to get ready to rule. Now, a few of you are going to believe that, and you're going to be the Josephs with a dream. Joseph, the Joseph story, is really the story of every single one of us if you've received Christ as your Savior, only the Joseph story makes the dimensions much more compressed. God's going to resolve the Joseph story in the period of an earthly life. God's not going to resolve my story or your story in the New Testament covenant of grace until eternity. But I want you to start to think, and I pray with all my heart, that the Holy Spirit will begin to grip some young people's life. Martin Luther King stirred an entire generation of the 60s with the phrase, I have a dream. I have a dream. What was his dream? His dream was of an America where there would be peace among the races. He had a dream where people could run in the bus where they wanted to ride. He had a dream where people could go to the bathroom where they wanted to go to the bathroom. He had a dream where people would get along. And he's dead by a gunshot wound. Because that's the world we live in. Bobby Kennedy is dead. John F. Kennedy is dead. All those dreamers of the 60s got squashed in the manure pile of this life, of the violence, of the hatred, of the jealousy. And Genesis chapter 37 gets right into the fabric of that kind of hate that we saw explode in our country in the 60s. And they could explode again at any time. It gets right into that kind of jealousy and rivalry. Only it talks to us about a much greater dream than people just getting along among the races in the United States. It talks about a group of those that believe in Jesus Christ who can get along for eternity. And he talks about a people that, do, that don't just do it on an ethereal concept of a peace symbol or of love. 
He talks to us about a genuine unifier, Jesus Christ, that can get all of us together for eternity. Let's look at the Joseph story. Genesis chapter 37, verse 2. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flock with his brothers, the sons of Bilkah, the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Right away we're faced with the divisiveness of polygamy. Now where in the world did Zilpah and Pilkah come from? Well, remember that these are the maids. Remember when Leah and Rachel were having the Super Bowl of motherhood? And they were debating about who could produce the most kids. And Rachel fell, fell way behind. She couldn't produce any kids. So she said, Bilka here is a young servant girl that was given to me. Jacob, go in unto her. And Bilka gave birth to children, which Rachel took as her own, before Joseph was born. So Bilka's kids are a little bit older than Joseph. Okay? Zilpah is the concubine, the servant girl of Leah, who became the concubine of Jacob. And she produced some other kids. So these are Joseph's stepbrothers. And Genesis does what it often does. It doesn't put a great big sign up. Naughty, 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 Jacob. You should not have married many wives. God thinks that's bad. Spank, spank, spank. God doesn't do that in Genesis very often. Every once in a while, God's, it's so important, God will underline it. Usually, God thinks you're intelligent enough to read an account, and when you see that if a guy marries four women and tries to live with the four women in one house, it doesn't work. And you need to learn that about life. You need to learn that what we learned last week, sin is dysfunctional. We're faced with a dysfunctionality of polygamy. It produces a mess of kids that can't get along. The divisiveness of polygamy. In our own culture, that comes over in, into what divorce does. Only God's grace can put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And we need to pray for that. In other words, when there's homes that break and they divide and then families are mixed. Our church family needs to become a place where there can be healing to overcome all this tremendous difficulty and hassle that starts to develop. Because it's tough. It's tough to get along with siblings. It's hard enough to get along with full-blooded siblings. It's hard when they're half. And that's what Joseph is dealing with. See how practical the Bible is? It talks about this kind of rivalry. Now the next verse tells us that Joseph, or the next line tells us, that Joseph brought back to his father a bad report about them. Now every one of you from the time you've been little kids have heard about the tattletale, right? Tattletale Joseph. Every Bible, I think every myth I've ever heard about Joseph. Joseph gets dumped on for being a tattletale. Tattle, and that's very important because people that do what Joseph did always get blamed for being a tattletale. I want to share something with you. Joseph is not a five-year-old that is playing with a friend after school who goes running into his mama and says, Mama, 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 you know what so-and-so is doing. That's not what Joseph is doing. Joseph is a 17-year-old. The coat 
which is a long coat, probably not a coat of many colors, but probably a long, elite nobleman's coat, was the symbol that his daddy had made him the overseer of his brothers. Very possibly not a great choice. But he was ordained by his dad to oversee his dad's business. If you dads or moms have your business and you've got a young 17-year-old and you put your son over your business interests, then you decide whether you want to know whether your overseer should come to you and, say, and tell you your employees are not doing at all what they're supposed to be doing. You see, Joseph brings back, he's not just talking about come see, come saw things, things that don't really make a difference. He brought a report about their evil behavior. This chapter is going to bear out what kind of evil was involved in these young men's lives. I want to share something with you. That's not tattletaling. If you are responsible, like at 16, I was a program director at Word of Life. I had about 40 counselors that were underneath me. I was responsible to oversee them in their work. Now, if things were going poorly, I needed to go to them individually. Matthew 18, tell us, if somebody offends us, we need to go to them directly. If they will not listen, then you need to try to appeal to them with somebody else. If they still will not listen, you need to go to the leaders that are over that situation. And when I worked at Word of Life, if I had to go to my dad, who happened to be the director about problems among the staff that I was working with, it was not tattletaling. It's not tattletaling when a teenager at school finds out that there's marijuana in the next locker to go to the administration and say there's drugs in this place. It's not tattletaling, though it goes against a lot that's inside of us. In fact, it's very loving to do that. It's not loving to cover everything up and say, oh, it'll all work out. We've already gone through as a town what happens when some cover and don't tell what they know. They're afraid they're going to be tattletales. And a dead policeman is an awfully hard way to learn that it's not tattletaling when there's wrong and there's an evil report, and things aren't right, to go to those that are responsible to deal with it. I want every one of us in this room to think hard about the difference between a little kid who's a tattletale and a leader who is responsible to those that he is overseeing and to those that are overseeing him or her. There's a difference. And Joseph has gotten a bad rap in the book of Genesis. He was not tattletaling. The whole story of the Joseph account is not of a snotty, uptight kid who just squealed on his brothers. The whole story of Genesis is of a brother who wanted to reach his brothers. He wanted to reach them. And he's going to struggle for a lifetime to do it. And it's very important to know those differences. Okay? The strife of polygamy. The next thing is, a, and we talked about the responsibility of leadership. I want to talk about a third thing. 
The famous part of this story is that Israel loved Joseph more than any of his, brother, uh, any of his sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and they could not speak a kind word to him. Now here we have the terrible divisiveness of partiality. This partiality principle is one of the key factors in this chapter. It's what generates the hate and the jealousy among Joseph's brothers. And Jacob was at fault. Joseph was not at fault for taking the responsibility of leadership. But Jacob was at fault for showing favoritism. It wasn't wrong to give a son a responsibility. But it was wrong to love Joseph and not love his other boys. And if any man should have known that, it was Jacob. Because in his own life, in his own life, what did he experience? Isaac loved Esau and he rejected Jacob. Jacob spent a lifetime trying to earn his father's love. If anybody should have known that partiality in a home destroys a family, Jacob should have known. But he does what a lot of us do. A lot of us, the very things that we hate, the very kind of sinfulness that we were raised with, we reproduce it. And we will reproduce it unless we face it. Church on Sunday morning, gathering with other believers, should be a time of hard-nosed, open honesty, not a time of covering up. Satan has turned the church experience into a time to pretend everything is nice when it isn't. And all over this country, God has raised up other groups like Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous and on and on it goes where people have to go into other groups many times that aren't even rooted in the redemptive power of Jesus because there they can be honest. There they can tell the truth without fear. You know how I would pray? One of the dreams I have is that God would create in the power of the Spirit the kind of a body of Christ manifested in our midst where we don't pretend anymore, where we don't pretend at all. When there's problems, we face it and we pray for one another and we carry one another's burdens and we, we cry out to the power of the Spirit to produce change. Oh, how a story could have been different if Jacob would have said, Oh, God, I acknowledge that my father Isaac never loved me, and I open my heart to your love. And I want to escape from this kind of, of partiality. And when he was tempted to do that with his own son, if he would have been open about it, and he would have realized, maybe his wife came to him and said, Honey, you know, Leah probably came to him over and over again and said, Honey, what are you doing with these boys? You're tearing them apart. And Jacob had a problem there because he, he loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. He showed favoritism all the way across the board. Could have been a different story. He would have opened up and acknowledged, I show very serious partiality. Do you, mom and dad? Now, home is not about fairness. I think we have to be very careful. You can spend your whole life as a parent trying to make everything fair, and kids are really into that. Homes are about grace. There's a difference. Homes are not about trying to make everything fair. But you know what homes are about? Homes are about every single child 
who knows in the pit of their soul that mommy and daddy choose me. They're glad to have me. They cherish me. And they love every one of us in a little bit different way because every one of us is different. How I praise God for the uniqueness of every one of my kids. But I wouldn't do without one of them. I need every one of them. From Jonathan to Janae. And everyone is chosen and loved and cherished. And they're part of our home. No partiality. It's hard to maintain that over the parenting responsibility. And oh, how we need to pray for one another. Jacob blew it. And what did it produce? It produced brothers that hated enough to murder. Now, to make matters worse, God stepped into the story and gave Joseph a dream. And you all know the story of Joseph's dream. Let's look at it. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, maybe not the wisest thing in the world, they hated him all the more. And he said to them, listen to this dream I had. I could just see Joseph come bopping in. Hey, guys, listen to what I dream. How do you ever do that? Mary tells me, Mary has some really strange dreams. I want to ask her to get up here today and relate her dreams But I'm really glad God doesn't speak to us primarily through dreams anymore. I'm glad I get to teach this and not Mary's dream that she shares with me, all right? But uh, some of you might be like, we have some, any of you never dream, some of you never dream, you never remember. We all dream, some of you don't remember. Joseph had one of those dreams that remembers, he comes bopping in and he tells his brother, listen to this, we were binding sheaves of grain out in the field. Good Texas cultural story here. We were out there bailing hay. Listen to this dream. We were out binding sheaves of grain in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright. You can see the brothers, uh huh. While your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. That's a great thing to tell your older brothers. Older brothers really get into that stuff. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Now, Joseph, remember, he was a responsible leader. Let's not dump on him for being a tattletale. If you want to dump on Joseph for anything, dump on him for being a little bit naive. His brothers, I mean, this guy is not a good counselor. Good counselors, when they look into people's eyes and steam is coming out, learn you're doing something wrong here. Joseph didn't get the point. He had another dream. Then he had another dream, and he's told his brothers, listen, I had another dream. And this time, now we're getting cosmic. I mean, it's like he's, you know, really, the sun and the moon and the stars and the 11 stars. (laughs) Notice how many brothers they have? 11 stars. Brothers, you get it? 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, even his father got uptight about this one, his father and brothers, his father rebuked him. And said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the dream, kept the matter in his heart. I want you to understand something, really understand the Old Testament context. And when you study the Old Testament, be careful not to take modern ideas and just push them back into the Old Testament and then make all kinds of judgments. Lots of people do that. Learn to get into Genesis. Let Genesis tell its own story. So when we think about dreams, I joked about Mary's dreams. When Joseph had a dream, we're not talking about my dreams or Mary's dreams. 
You see, before this precious book was given, we have a precedent. We have a precedent that the almighty creator God, who said, let there be light in Genesis chapter 1, chose to reveal himself by inspired messages. Joseph was in a family that had a tradition of dreams that gave revelation of the promise of God. Abraham. Abraham had a dream. And Abraham in his dream saw these burning, burning, this burning torch-like thing. There were animals that he had divided on either side and he saw this torch, this burning light, go through those divided animals alone. And God revealed to Abraham during that dream that his descendants would spend 400 years in captivity in Egypt. And that was not just your casual everyday dream. It was the promise. It was the promise that God, the creator, was at work in Abraham's life. It was Abraham who heard, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Let's just go to Joseph's daddy. Joseph's daddy was fleeing from home because of the jealousy of his own brother, because of the hatred of his own brother. And he comes to Bethel and he puts his head on a stone and during the night he has a dream. And what does he see? He sees the very resurrected, glorified, not resurrected, but glorified Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, at the top of the throne of heaven. He sees the ministering angels coming down and he realizes that he is in the very presence of God, and God makes him a promise. Jacob, you will go to a foreign land, but I will bring you back home safe. You will come back to your father. And we've just spent weeks and weeks in the book of Genesis watching God through 20 years of hard times bring Jacob back to live with Isaac back home. Those dreams were important. What is the dream that Joseph received? Joseph received a dream about ruling. Joseph received a dream about the fact that his father and his mother and his brothers would one day bow before him. Like I mentioned earlier in our message, the power struggle in the book of Genesis, God's going to narrow it all down to just this life. And the power struggle is going to be between the man who God has ordained to be a ruler, to be a leader, and the wicked men who reject him, who hate him. And every one of you in this room need to realize, if you're a child of God, if you're a born-again believer, when you walk into your job, you are a marked woman, you are a marked man. Because God has ordained you to be his child, you're going to rule. And Satan hates that. And that's why those who will live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Because those who are wicked, those who are evil, are going to reject you. They're not going to like you. And you think this morning, some of you come here this morning and say, I can get away from this. I just come on Sunday morning, we read a little nice things from the Bible, and man, it makes me feel good. I learn a little bit about life, and I just go out and just live life, and it's kind of neutral territory. No, it isn't. It's not neutral at all. The Lord just has a tremendous way of reminding me. He reminds me very much through cussing. I often share that with you. It happened again yesterday. Man, if anything's neutral... A soccer field is neutral. No spiritual conflict on soccer fields. It's away from church. It's away from the Bible. Nobody's even thinking of the Bible. 
Uh, two universities were planned. Jonathan and Joel, sadly, were getting smashed by a team from Fort Worth. They were behind. It wasn't really interesting. So we turned our chairs around, and I went to watch two universities play. I thought I was in church. The guy missed the ball. Jesus Christ. I said, amen. Good. Great. Born again believer. The referee called offsides. Man, the guy was four foot offsides. He said, oh, God. I yelled out to him. God didn't have make you offsides. You were offsides. God didn't have anything to do with you being offside. It wasn't his fault. I yelled at that because I was on the right side. And the guy that had yelled, oh, God, was on the other team. So I was safe. So they laughed at me instead of slugging me. What I'm saying is through the whole game, I mean, God was very much an integral part of that soccer game. He was the most frequently named thing. You know, the name, it was the attribute. I mean, you'd think it was the praise service, only they weren't praising. You see, you can't get away from it. You live there. Last Sunday afternoon when the boys and I and Janae and Mary went to the cowboy game, we didn't get away from Jesus Christ. I heard Jesus Christ quite a bit at the game. Why? Because there's a tremendous power struggle. Tremendous power struggle. Let's take Jesus and crotch him into the ground. Let's curse him. There's another group of people that gather together to praise him. Which side are you going to be on? Those that want to pound him into the ground hate him. There's a reason for that. And I find it tremendously motivating because I was raised with this Jesus thing. It's easy for me to say, oh, maybe my dad just kind of was wrong. You know, he, he's always told me about this Jesus thing. Maybe he was wrong. And then I go to a soccer field and I say, me alive, I, I come here and they're talking about Jesus. And the Holy Spirit reminds me, Dave, you can never get away. It's always underneath the surface. Whether it's Saturday Night Live, whether it's Entertainment Tonight, whether it's a movie, the messages are always about the conflict. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as the Lord and as the King, or do you curse him as being wicked and evil? And if you curse him, you become controlled by jealousy and hatred and violence, and it breaks forth in a vicious fire that destroys families. And that's what the Joseph story is about. God said, Joseph is my ordained one, my chosen one. God says in Romans 8, for those he did for no, those he also predestinated, those he called, those he justified, those he glorified, to become the children of God, to rule and reign forever and ever. And any one of you that wants to believe can believe and come to the Son of God. But from God's standpoint, it's about the dream. It's about his choice. It's a marvelous balance of human responsibility and God's control. But it's very important to understand that those who have the dream, those who have Jesus in their heart, are marked people. So how does it work out? The anger intensifies. The anger builds. One day, Jacob says to Joseph, Joseph, Bilk and Zilp and the rest of the guys, you know, up there with the kids, they're way up there at Shechem. Evidently, they were going back. Remember, Shechem was the village they wiped out. Evidently, enough time was... It's not too smart to go back to an area where you wiped out the entire population. I guess it's safe, though, if I think about it. You know, maybe no one else was there, and it was just free pastures. Anyway, the brothers are back into that heinous spot where they killed everybody. Shechem. 
Jacob is an obedient son. Once again, the picture in Genesis. This boy is a 17-year-old. Contrary to what we all think, you know, 17-year-olds, they've got to disobey. They've got to go away from their parents. Baloney. Joseph didn't do it. Daniel didn't do it. You don't need to go through time to rebellion against God. Rebellion at, at, rebellion at 17 is like rebellion at 26, is like rebellion at 40. It's just wrong. When Joseph's father says, Jacob, please go and check on your brother, he didn't say, I will not. You old man, just leave me alone. I'm going to go out with my friends. He said, yes, sir. And he went. Little did he know that his obedience would forever, for not forever, but for many years, separate him from death. It was a long hike. It was 50 miles. That's a long way to go. He didn't have a 10-speed. With a 10-speed, he could have made it pretty quick. But he had to walk. Got up to Shechem. Nobody there. One guy's out there. I don't know what this guy is doing. He just kind of comes on the, on the scene. Some guy wandering around the field. He says, hey! Kind of like coming in the middle of you, not knowing where you're going. You stop somebody in the street and says, hey, what's going on? The stranger tells him, well, your brothers went about 15 miles farther than north to Dotham. His brothers, Joseph starts walking the next 15 miles. His brothers can see him a good way off. And they say this. In Genesis chapter 37, the story gets very, very sad. When it says in verse 17, So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dotham. But they saw him. This is verse 18. They saw him from a distance. Before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now. Let's kill him and show him and throw him into one of these cisterns and, and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dream. You see what I've been talking to you about? See the conflict over the dream? When Reuben, his oldest brother, heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Now, Reuben's kind of a good old boy. He's not strong enough just to stand directly against his brother. He's kind of like a good old boy coward, and good old boy cowards never protect anybody. But give Reuben the benefit of the doubt. At least he tried to save his, his little brother. Let's not take his life. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay any hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing. They took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty and there was no water in it. And then they sat down to eat their meal. They looked up. They saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Let me say something to you. See, all of you have the idea that if, you're, if you really do something violent, that all of a sudden your whole life comes apart, that all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're just nervous as can be, and you can never be, have things back together. And I want to share something with you that's very naive about evil. You see, the reality of your existence and mine, and this is in my heart and it's in your heart, if we start to curse the sun, if you read Innocence Lost, you'll hear some cursing of the suns from both sides. And you read about immorality and you read about evil. It leads to very intense cruelty. And contrary to what a lot of people think about Sunday morning religion, biblical faith, contrary the Sunday morning religion really knows about what's in a school and what's in a business and what's in families and what's in life. It knows about the violent hatred. You are talking about boys, men, who took their youngest brother, 
not their youngest, but the next to youngest brother, put him in a pit. Later, in the book of Genesis, it's going to tell us that Joseph screamed to them. I want you to imagine that. You're an older boy, a man. You take your 17-year-old brother, you throw him into a deep pit, about 15 feet deep. No water in it, because it's a dry country. And then what do you do? You sit down and you eat. And as you're eating, you can hear the screams of your little brother crying out to you to let him out, to save his life. And his brothers did not heed the pleading. Now that's sick. That is bad. It's as bad as anything that a policeman in our church family faces. It's as bad as anything you might face in some of your dealings in school. One of our teachers shared with me, the teachers in another part of our city told me of... A suicide in their school last week. Tremendous drug problems in the school. Told me, they used the description. says, my teaching is like a war zone. I took some people to a football game on Saturday night. They've never, they had never been to a football game like that before. You know one of the things they said? I said, I can't believe it. The girl led in prayer before the game. At the very end of her, of her prayer, she says, and I praise the Lord, something for the, for the idea, for the blood of Jesus, something like that. And then she closed her prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Do you all realize as a group the tremendous privilege that is to do that? It's incredible that we can still do that. Let's thank the Lord for it. Because in light of the struggle we've been talking about, it produces a tremendous expression of praise to Jesus. Very important. Because when you slip into the dark side, you slip into evil. You have brothers that will take their very own brother, throw him in a pit, and while he cries out to them, they just eat. And it's, the Genesis account pictures them being like wolves who tear their prey apart, and then they just all gather around, and they feast on the carcass. Judah enters this story next. Now, you need to watch Judah, because in the long run, Judah, I'm, I'm going to jump ahead in this story, which I shouldn't do, but... I'll do it anyway. Kind of like telling you the ending before we even do the beginning. Judah is the key pivotal figure. He is the one you never suspect that becomes the key character in the whole story. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain? He's a materialist. All of his children are very good in materialism too, for the most part. What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? We're not going to get anything. We just leave him here and kill him. Come, let's sell him. Good idea. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. At least the guy has a little bit of family loyalty. After all, the guy is our full-blood brother. Let's not kill him. So when the Midianite merchants came, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern. They stole him for 20 shekels, 20 pieces of silver, to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned, he just was furious. He was upset. He said, what in the world am I going to tell my dad? They take Joseph's robe, this coat that was the object of their hate. They dipped it in goat's blood and they took it to their dad. Isn't that a charming family? Some of you are from bad families, dysfunctional families. Some of you think your families are really bad and you think there's no hope for you. This is one of the leading families of the Old Testament, and they've got bad, bad problems. How do you think Jacob felt when his sons come from Dotham? They come into his tent, 
and they throw a blood-stained Joseph's robe on the floor. The text tells us that Jacob's spirit died within him. Jacob said, I will never be comforted. And Jacob spent the next several years of his life believing that his most loved son was dead. Now, I want you you to remember something. Years before, Jacob went into his father with his arms covered with... Do you remember that? What kind of hair was on his arms? He deceived his father, his own father, with with a goat. Goat skin. When his own sons deceived him, how did they deceive their daddy? The blood of a goat. You know what the author of Genesis is telling you? If you don't deal with your deception, if you don't deal with the covering of your life, if you don't allow truth and honesty and the marvelous transforming grace of God to come into your life, then it's just going to be a revolving, spiraling, cyclic thing where you deceive, you are deceived. The very things you use to deceive others will be the things that deceive you and you'll be trapped in a vicious cycle of destruction and hate and murderous, immoral violence. And Jacob was a great man of God and he met God face to face. But there were still these areas, like in almost all of our lives, where he wouldn't really uncover it. He didn't learn the lesson of partiality. He showed partiality again. He was deceitful and it wiped him right out. And oh, how we need to learn. I would say it's so important for us today to come by the grace of God, to come into the presence of God and say, here I am. And I'm going to be honest with you, Lord, about my deceit. I'm going to be honest with you about myself. I'm going to be honest with you about what I'm facing. No double standards. They sell Joseph into Egypt, and the text closes, and Joseph was sold into Potiphar's house. Now, this story is bad, really bad. In fact, this chapter closes kind of on a very dark note. We've got Jacob mourning over the loss of his son. We have cruel, violent brothers who just treacherously deceive their dad. We've got Joseph in slavery in Egypt. Now, if you were Joseph at this point, And I do an interview. ABC News is interviewing Joseph down in Egypt. Joseph, how's it doing? You're 17 years old. Man, you just just had, you were the number one football player in your high school. You made uh, 1,600 on the SAT, going to a great university. How does life look for you now? What would you think? What do you think Joseph would say? Do any of you kids know what it's like? To just suddenly find yourself a slave? You go from being the favored son to being a slave. Some of you adults, can you remember in your own life where you went from being the favored son, the favored daughter, to the pits? Do you remember those times in your life when all the dreams came crashing down? It happens to almost every single one of us sooner or later. Joseph at 17 is the boy with a dream that was shattered. What chance in the world 
does Joseph dream of having his father and his family and his brothers bowing down before him? God gave him a dream. You know what Joseph could have done in Egypt? Joseph could have said, Yahweh, God. Who's going to believe in Yahweh, God? Who's going to worship God? He's a flunky. Man, he gave me a dream. He told me I was going to rule and reign over my brothers. I'm not ruling and reigning. I'm a slave. I'm a servant. Man, I'm, I'm not going to see my parents again. I'm in Egypt, several hundred miles away from home. This is crazy. I'm going to worship the gods of Egypt. That's what some of you kids are going to want to do when you go to university. It's going to go bad. Things aren't going to work out. You're going to go through a time of questioning. Maybe all that stuff Dave told us on Sunday morning. This Jesus stuff. Man, I've got a professor. Man, he talks about, you know, Buddha and Eastern mysticism. Man, maybe there's really some great things in that stuff. And you're going to be tempted to say, ah, the thing I learned in this book, that's not really where it's at. Some of you adults can do the same thing. When you get in the pit and you get sold into slavery, that's where the rubber meets the road. Who do you believe? Who do you believe? We're going to go on with the story of Joseph and find out, wonder of all wonders, grace. Joseph at 17, in a foreign country, did what I pray every one of these kids will do. And I pray for all of you that like Joseph of old, that will remember Yahweh's dream. Yahweh's dream is not a pretend story of the field of dreams. It's not a marvelous fairy tale that says heaven is the place where dreams come true without any authenticity behind it. What I've taught you this morning is not a fairy tale. One day you're going to find out it's the authentic, genuine reality forever. The question is, will you join Joseph and believe in the pits? Will you join him and praise the Savior, Jesus Christ? Or will you join the jealousy and the anger and the vengeance and the murder of the kingdom of darkness? Those are the choices. And they're choices that we make day by day. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter. Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.